Hello, and welcome to I Am Dad podcast with your fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. 30 minutes of wisdom, information, resources, and nuggets to help you on your fatherhood journey. Or maybe you're just curious and want to hear some real talk about fatherhood, family, and the minds of men. Well, guess what? We got you too. Sit back, grab your pad and pen, and maybe even bring a little something to sip on. Enjoy 30 straight minutes of fatherhood, family, and fun with the fatherhood authority. Kenneth Braswell. Welcome to I Am Dad Podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell, and we thank you for joining us another Sunday morning as we kick off a new um, conversation with influential voices and prominent voices and folks that have been toiling in this field of responsible fatherhood for decades. Um, just to, you know, we do these shows and sometimes they're between 30, 45 minutes, but I could tell you there's not one person I've interviewed that we've had enough time to cover everything that they have in their knowledge bag. Today is going to be no different. This gentleman that I'm going to introduce you today has been toiling in this field of fatherhood um, for a long time. He hails from Chicago. His name is Jeffrey Leving. He has been named one of America's best lawyers by Forbes Radio and selected by his peers as one of Illinois' top attorneys. He is an international leader in advocating for fathers' rights in the courtroom among politicians and policymakers and legislative initiatives in his books and in his radio, television, public speaking appearances, you name it, he's everywhere. He's also the founder and president of the law offices of Jeffrey M. Leving LTD Limited in Chicago, a firm concentrating in matrimonial and family law, which has gained momentum victories for fathers seeking to keep their children in the lives and protect them from danger. Jeff, how you doing? I'm doing great, and it's uh, good talking to you. Absolutely. As my good friend always says to me, he says, it's uh, great to be seen and not viewed. And I'm like, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) And so this guy, this gentleman has been around for us. No, I have all of his books on my shelves. I went back a little while ago to see if they were actually on my shelf here in the office or on my shelves at home. And I think one is here and one is there. Um, But he's just been an advocate for fathers. And today we're going to share some of his expertise. And I want to you to know him as an individual, not so much as a lawyer, but I want you to know him as a man because I think it is the man in him and the humanitarian in him that forges him to do the work that he does. And I want to talk a little bit about that. But Jeff, we start all of our shows off very simply by asking this question and you can answer it from whatever angle you want to ask, answer it from. And that is, what's your daddy's story? Well, my, my father uh, really cared a lot uh, about his uh, family. Um, he uh, he grew up on the west side of Chicago. Had some tough times. Uh, he struggled. Uh, wasn't educated. Uh, as a young man, he was in prison. When he got out, he he worked and pulled his life together and struggled and. Uh, got married and and raised uh, me and my brother and my uh, sister the best he could until my parents divorced. I did have an older sister that I never met. She uh, 
that's a long story, but she uh, uh, she uh, uh, passed away. It's a very long story, and uh, he um, he just uh, didn't really have any any really any opportunities growing up, and uh, and uh, when my parents divorced, my uh, younger brother. Uh, unfortunately ended up in an orphanage, a Catholic orphanage where he was raised. Actually, that's where my older sister was raised, uh, who uh, I never had the opportunity of meeting, but she does have a daughter who uh, did find me and it was interesting uh, connecting with her. Uh, and uh, where did I grow up? I grew up on the southeast side of Chicago uh, and went to Warren Grammar School mm-hmm. after that. My first year uh, in high school was at Bowen, and I was there for two more years, and then I ended up at Sun. And Bowen was a gigantic high school on the southeast side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting when I was growing up there is I, I loved the neighborhood. You know, people always talk about Chicago, and and, and some things are critical of certain neighborhoods. But the area I grew up in is a, had a family focus. And one of my neighbors when I was a little boy was Muhammad Ali. Mm. He lived on Jeffrey Boulevard, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, was right near Chicago Vocational School, which was a high school in the area. And I either uh, would have went to Bowen or CVS, but I ended up going to Bowen instead. Who knows why? That's just where I ended up going. Probably would have been better off going to CVS because uh, I would have learned a trade there. At Bowen, I didn't learn much of anything. Most of what I hate to say, but most of what I learned at Bowen, I learned at home studying because it was uh, because of certain issues uh, uh, I had to deal with uh, when I went to Bowen. There were gangs, and it was just uh, it wasn't conducive to studying uh, and academics. But you know, but it was a life experience. But getting back to Muhammad Ali, really enjoyed having him as a neighbor, and I remember. Uh, he invited me in his house once with a good friend of mine who now passed away, and uh, he uh, was playing Howard Cosell tapes for us. He, he seemed to really like Howard Cosell. Yes, he did. Yes, I was really did. young then, mm-hmm. and I couldn't understand the tapes because I was so young then. I didn't know, didn't know what, what Howard Cosell was talking about, <laughs> but I pretended to be interested because Muhammad Ali was interested, uh, and Muhammad Ali was a lot of yeah, the interesting thing about Mohan, because I've done, I'm actually writing now, I'm in the middle of writing now, a, um affirmation journal for young black leaders using Muhammad Ali's principles. And so, and with a goal to releasing it um, in Nairobi, Kenya next year, because next year is the 50th anniversary of the Rumble in the Jungle. And so we're actually going to go over there and really see if we can gleam on that along with a good friend of mine, Kwame Alexander, um, who wrote a book called I Am Mohammed. And so we're going to do some stuff. We're talking to Lonnie Ali about actually coming over and doing some stuff with teachers and literacy and really kind of digging into his principles to see if we can use those as a mechanism to increase the level of excitement about reading. But Chicago, I want to get back to what you was talking about, Chicago. Chicago holds um, one of the uh, memories of, to me, the most endeared, loving 
fatherhood story there is specifically for African Americans and probably for Chicago as well. And that is one James Evans played by John Amos in the TV series Good Times. Um, that show was actually shot in Cabrini Green's projects um, back in the 70s. Always taped in the studio, but it was kind of pointed towards Cabrini Greens in Chicago. And I had a chance to meet um, John Amos a few years ago in New York. He spoke at a dinner of mine, and I had the chance to tell him that for many of us who grew up in my community in Brooklyn, like many communities in Chicago, that he was the only positive role model, black role model, who played the role of a father on TV for us. And that when the show canceled him and um, he died in that third season of Good Times, many of our fathers died that day, too. Um, That, you know, he was the image for us of a man who um, embraced fatherhood, who embraced family, who embraced community, um, who struggled to do so, but still did it despite all of the conditions that he was surrounded by. And so when you were describing Chicago, I was thinking about him and thinking about those conditions that you're talking about. Talk to me a little bit about the journey, um, Jeffrey, about you becoming an attorney, because based on what you just said with respect to your background, I'm trying to connect the dots to see what led you to want to be an attorney. And then after you talk about the attorney piece of it, what made you specifically focus on family law? Well, I wanted to become an attorney because uh, growing up in Chicago, I, I, I personally witnessed injustices I, I, in and out of our system. Uh, even as a little boy growing up, uh, there are certain things I, I, I experienced uh, that... Uh, could take hours and hours to explain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, I just, you know, I knew kids I, I, I grew up with uh, that had no money, no future. And some of them ended up uh, jailed uh, when they never should have been jailed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they ended up targets looking for an arrow just because of who they, who they were mm-hmm. and where they lived. And sometimes because of their race, ethnicity, and this is something that bothered me. And I, I really, as a boy growing up, I wanted to try and change things in Chicago. Because mm-hmm. uh, as a young, young boy, all I knew was Chicago. And I wanted Chicago to be a better city where uh, there was, where equal rights would apply to everybody and justice would not be a luxury only the rich could afford. So I really wanted to become a lawyer uh, to do that. And as a young lawyer, my, my first real job practicing law was in legal aid, uh, Chicago Volunteer Legal Services Foundation, representing people that were indigent that otherwise wouldn't have a lawyer. Uh, and that's where I started. And I started out handling criminal defense cases, uh, representing uh, many defendants accused of, of, uh, of, of crimes. And, uh, and I eventually started focusing on issues affecting fathers and families uh, because I just saw a lot of injustice in the defendants I represented mm-hmm. who, who 
most of them, especially the men, had no fathers. They didn't even have father figures. Mm. And uh, I represented uh, a lot of young men that were gangbangers, and and they became gangbangers because that was their family. They didn't even have real families. Uh, so they would gravitate toward gangs. They were sometimes victimized and util- utilized uh, in, 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 in those organizations. Uh, and it was just a real sad situation. Uh, so I just saw the issue of father, uh, fatherlessness and how it was tearing, uh, you know, just tearing people apart and how a lot of these young boys were, were, were falling victim uh, because simply because they didn't have a father or even a father figure. So I, I started focusing on helping fathers and representing a lot of fathers in paternity cases, divorce uh, cases, false abuse cases where a lot of fathers have been were falsely accused. I represented one father who was falsely accused of abuse of his son, and it was a terrible case. And I was convinced he didn't do it. And he was in a situation where he's going to lose his son forever if he lost. If he lost the trial, he would not only lose his son forever, he would probably eventually end up going to prison for doing nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. The only, the only, the only thing he. The only issue was he was living in poverty and he had he had no opportunities, but he was a good father struggling. Uh, and I represented him and it was a, a, a terrible trial. And I'll, I'll never forget at the end of the trial, the judge, even though I won, it was a confusing victory. Mm-hmm. At least part of the victory in winning was that my client wasn't at risk for losing his liberty as well as his son. But... The, the judge supervised my client's visitation rights with this little boy, even though the judge found he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't physically, sexually abuse or emotionally abuse his son in any way. Mm-hmm. So based on the law, the judge couldn't supervise his visitation rights because he didn't do anything harmful to his boy. But here's the problem. There was so much parental alienation in this case mm-hmm. uh, that the little boy believed he was abused by dad, even though he wasn't, because not only because of the mother and her extended family, but so-called experts that uh, she had access to for free that further facilitated these false allegations. So this boy believed he was a victim of abuse when he wasn't. So here I won the trial and the father had to visit his son under a magnifying glass while he was being monitored. And the judge said he did that on the record to protect the father from future false child abuse allegations. Wow. Uh, so that, that, that was one case that really opened my eyes to some of the injustices. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this father became a friend of mine. I really cared about him deeply. And over the years, eventually he passed away. And uh, it's a very sad situation because his son uh, uh, passed away. But uh, at least he had an opportunity to be a father and his son had an opportunity to have a father mm-hmm. while they were both, uh, both here. Wow. You know, Jeffrey, one of the things as you're going through this narrative, and I'm so glad that you talked about 
um, him and, and, and the courts. When I got into this work now some 20 years ago in the state of New York, um, I can remember the tension in the air uh, talking about fatherhood, right? And there was this unknowing, um, particularly as it relates to folks understanding the differences between the nature and the focuses of people who were in responsible fatherhood, the programmatic side of this stuff, service delivery side, and folks that were on the father's right side, which was really looking at legalities and the courts and judges and things of that sort. And there was just this tension that every time I went out to speak, I had to explain to folks that, no, I wasn't a part of of the father's right side, but it wasn't because I was separating because I understood that side. I met with those gentlemen. I sat down. I listened to their stories. I heard their pain. I heard their issues. But from a programmatic side, it was like we got to just release from each other a little bit so that we can make sure that the Sympathy and empathy of society allows us to begin to build the narrative of responsible fathers and fathers in in general and their importance in the life of children. And what I've seen over the last 20 years is those things begin to merge more and more and more together so that people aren't so sensitive when we begin to start talking about the legal side of responsible fatherhood and what's happening in the courts, which is kind of where I want to sit today because we don't have enough of that conversation. We don't talk a lot about how um, many of these dads, and so we're serving dads here in Metro Atlanta, and literally I hear these stories every day from dads that are going through some issue um, as it relates to um, the legal aspects of being in the life of their child. Have you seen a easing of the issues or somewhat of a reduction of what's happening in courts? And have you seen, based on the work that you're doing, and I know sometimes you and I, can we can be in silos, right? Very difficult to see outside because we're so entrenched in what we're working with. But overall and outside of that box, are you seeing any level of improvement, sympathy, or empathy to dads different today than 20 years ago? I would say yes, but it's not significant. But the answer is yes. When I started practicing law as a young lawyer, something happened to me that I don't think would happen now. There was a judge uh, that spoke to me privately, wanted to talk to me. I'll never forget this conversation. He was a brilliant judge. And he told me, you are defining yourself as a father's rights attorney. This isn't something that's going to help you professionally. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't do it. You're going to make enemies. Uh, you're going to create problems for yourself. You're going to probably put your law license at risk. It's not the time to to define yourself as an advocate for fathers and fathers' rights. Mm. Don't do it. And uh, I respected this this judge, uh, and I listened to his opinion. I disagreed with him. I don't think a judge would 
would make the same comments that that judge made to me to a young lawyer today. Mm. So I do think in that respect, things have have changed. But a lot of when I was a young lawyer, there were a lot of unusual things occurring that I don't think would occur. I remember when I was a young lawyer, I was representing uh, a very thin, frail, young African-American dad, a really good, really good father. Uh, he, he was, uh, his problem was he was actually too nice of a guy and he, he was gullible. Mm-hmm. And he came to me after he had a lawyer who uh, settled his case, putting him at risk and then left the case. So he settled the case where this father uh, uh, had an obligation. It was, it was actually when I was retained, it was a post of work. To pay money to the mother, not for child support, as part of a property distribution that this dad could never afford, uh, afford uh, to comply with. So when he came to me, he was facing jail time for not complying with court-ordered obligations that were impossible. He didn't have a lot of money. Uh, he was a uh, he delivered mail. Uh, he was a postman, and and he he's just barely making a living, and he had a lot of financial responsibilities. Well, I remember pre-trying the case with this judge, and. Uh, and I, I really was getting the feeling that this judge, uh, you know, did not like my client because of his race, just in mm. my gut. And he was becoming very, very hostile, not toward me, but toward my client in the pretrial conference with the opposing attorney. And then he made a comment to me uh, uh, referencing uh, my client uh, having... Um, uh, basically, uh, you know, like the Vaseline uh, with him, and he started laughing. He thought it was funny, meaning that he was going to sentence him, and he's probably going to get raped. And he thought the whole thing was funny, and I started panicking because I didn't want my client to end up in jail when the only crime he committed was being poor. Mm. And also trusting a lawyer who put him in a terrible situation before I was retained. I remember what I did there. I told the judge um, that I was really sick and not feeling well and asked for a continuance. And I wasn't lying. I wasn't feeling well. I felt sick and, and wanted a continuance. And I was able to convince the judge to continue the case and give me a continuance, which I thought was important. Because uh, if I didn't get a continuance, I was my gut told me my client was going away. Uh, what I did is I worked feverishly and uh, put a bankruptcy petition together, got into federal court, filed it, and then got a, a bunch of automatic stays, uh, uh, which would prevent my client's creditors uh, from going after him. Now, this wasn't child support he owed. It was a property distribution, mm-hmm. uh, which I believe was dischargeable in bankruptcy. So on the next court date, I walked into court with an automatic stay from federal court. And I said, you handed it to the court. Your Honor, he's he's not going to be able to go to prison, or at least not today. He's not going to be able to go to, he's not going to be incarcerated. The judge, I thought, was going to jump off the bench and mm. strangle. 
mm-hmm. because uh, the contingency gave me, enabled me to keep my client out of jail. Well, what was interesting about that, that hit the, uh, that was in the law bulletin, there was an article about it, and it ended up uh, uh, with language that the judge couldn't be reached for comment. Uh, but it was interesting. And the judge eventually was off the bench and applied for a job with me when he was off the bench. And I guarantee you, I would never, uh, I, I wasn't interested in having somebody like that join my firm in my fight for the rights for fathers, civil rights, justice, because what he did or what he tried to do to my client was very offensive to me, but he had all the power I didn't. But that continuance saved my client's life. Wow. You know, one of the things that's happening today, too, um, is social media in the sense that social media has put a laser on stories and situations where high-level influencers are involved. So we know a a lot more about child support cases of famous athletes and rappers and, 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 and movie stars and entertainers than we have ever known in the past. Every time something happens, these names are in, in the news. And um, there have been several times that we have been approached by an agency for someone from someone in that space that, um, you know, wasn't really paying a lot of attention to their lifestyle, you know, prior, you know, and while they were in the height of their professional career. And then after, you know, the lights began to go down, the reality of life began to set down and you got this guy you know, who was a NBA, NFL, MLB, NHL player that was making millions and millions of dollars look around and he doesn't have any money because he's got seven mothers with, you know, 14 kids or whatever the case may be. And now he's being hit with child support all over the place and they're trying to figure this out. And all of this is happening in the public space. So all of it is happening and people are able to see and people are making judgment calls about the behavior that he should have had when he was a player and the, and the obligation that they should have now. Um, I know that many of those individuals also come through your law offices. Um, how much of an impact do you think those really high-profile cases are having on, like, the average dad who walks into court um, and have to prove to the judge and to anybody else that they are capable of being a healthy and responsible father? Well, some of those cases do have impact. Some, uh, some uh, do not. I, I represented a very well-known rapper who was in a terrible situation, uh, and he was uh, being aggressively pursued by the opposing attorney for paying child support. Uh, and the child wasn't even his. He didn't know that, but I was able to. Uh, Discover that for him, uh, and it was a very sad situation. But if I didn't strategically uncover uh, that information, uh, who knows? Judge could have locked him up for not paying child support when he wasn't even the wasn't even the father. Mm-hmm. And I, I know, and there was, a, and he was very well known. And uh, there was a, a, another. Uh, a client who wasn't well known who I represented, and he was from Atlanta, 
And he, the court ordered him to pay child support for a, a child that wasn't his. And it was clear uh, the child wasn't his. The judge knew he wasn't the father. And the judge uh, basically uh, was wanted to steal his liberty for him. Make a long story short, I, I represented this dad and everything worked out. He never, uh, he, he never uh, was in prison. Uh, so I was very happy with the results. And it was interesting, uh, after that was over, I was invited to lecture at Morehouse College, which is in Atlanta. And he showed up there <laughs> and it was, it was really nice. Uh, you know, he showed up, it was nice talking to him. And, uh, you know, it was just very, very tough situation. But there are a lot of rappers, uh, professional athletes that do come to me that wouldn't have uh, come to my office 40 years ago. And uh, they can make an impact on how society sees fathers. Mm-hmm. They can make an impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it could be good or bad. It depends on how their lawyer represents them how they're portrayed in the, in the media. I, when I was a little kid growing up in Chicago, one of my heroes was Ernie Banks, who played for the Chicago Cubs. Mm-hmm. And, then when he, and he was referred to me by another lawyer who probably felt, you know, the lawyer maybe felt, uh, maybe she felt she wasn't an expert or whatever. I don't know why, but I appreciated her trust in me. Mm-hmm. And I represented him. And he was really, really, really a, a good guy. And uh, I, I represented him and I fought hard for him. And he was really focused on fatherhood. And he actually, as a courtesy to me, became accepted a position as the honorary president of Fatherhood Educational Institute uh, in Chicago. Because mm-hmm. he really cared about children and he cared about fathers. And... Uh, Attorney Art Callow, who's a director at that organization, uh, also, uh, you know, worked with Ernie Banks. And it was really sad when he passed away. Mm-hmm. But the real key is in representing artists and athletes and actors that that have a lot of influence on, a, on our society and especially young people. Mm-hmm. Happens to them and how it's portrayed in the media does have a strong uh, impact what the heck is going on in our society right. and when when media portrays a lot of these guys as deadbeats that's that's not good but it's great for it's great for advertising advertising dollars right. uh, but um you know these these uh these influencers because they all can influence future of our country because people really listen to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They really yeah. listen to what they say. Yeah. There's another element of the work that you um, deal with, and I want to add this. You mentioned earlier about your mom and dad divorcing, um, and in your book, How to Be a Good Divorced Dad, you talk about fathers going through divorce, and we don't talk a lot about that, you know, being a father and going through a relationship breakup and having to still be a great parent, but also be a great co-parent. When you look at the differences in what's happening with fathers who are actually divorced and they're trying to be that, because I think there's a different element when you just break up with the person and you're not 
married as opposed to when you're married and you have to get a divorce. How do those two things look differently? Well, that's something I usually look at on a case-by-case or a family-by-family basis. I I have a a lawyer in my firm who uh, went through a divorce, just as I did, and I and I watched how it impacted him before the divorce was finalized, uh, and and post divorce. And this is a real good father, a real 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 good man, and uh, and it, uh, it was tough, but it, it it was very tough on him, and it, it it's tough on every man mm-hmm. going through a divorce and and losing your your family while you're trying to keep your family together and protect your children so they're safe and protect your relationship with them. I mean, it, it, it's it's a struggle, and it takes a lot of internal fortitude, and it's tough for a lot of men because a lot of men don't have any support. Mm. And if a man, unfortunately, wants to be a dad or wants to really be a father and involve father, there are a lot of people in our society that think, He's odd. There's something odd about him. But if he doesn't want to be a, a good father and he just wants to work 100 hours a week, pay a lot of child support, then a lot of people in our society think, now oh, that's a good father. That's a good father. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has to do with how our society defines uh, being a man and being a father. And it's, it's, it's really bothersome. To me, I mean, Margaret Mead once said, "Fathers are biological necessities, but social accidents." And there are there are people that really believe that fathers really don't really aren't necessary in parenting. Their only really role is 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 paying support and working, killing themselves, paying support, and that that's really it. And it's something I know that's changed a little bit. But it really has to change a lot to protect our, our society, the future of our society. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could go on forever talking about this, but I know the government spends a lot of money uh, prosecuting fathers that are dead broke, and some of them end up in jail when they're dead broke and can't pay child support. Why? It would take less money to, to help them find work, mm-hmm. employ them, opposed to prosecute them and incarcerate them. It's very expensive to, to prosecute and incarcerate fathers when it would make a lot more sense to help them and, and help them become productive members of society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we get these phone calls from these dads, you know, through our programs, and you know, I've been getting them now for 20 years. Uh, we just got one yesterday. In fact, you know, guy called and he's mad. I mean, he's upset and he hasn't seen his child in two months. And, you know, and he literally believes that the world is against him and he's there's absolutely nothing he can do about it. And one of the most difficult things to get when you're poor um, in these situations is an attorney because you don't have the money to hire an attorney. Right. And you have to rely on the good graces, you know, of law firms and agencies who have relationships with law firms to help them through the entanglement that they may be caught up in in the system. When you run across those kinds of dads, those dads that are just, you you can tell that if this individual doesn't get counsel and help, he's going to do something 
that's going to, to your point earlier, move him out of the pathway of being connected with his child. Like, how do you talk to that dad and how do you give that dad anything to help him come off of the ledge so that he can process what's going on so that he can do the right things in that situation? I first analyzed whether I could help this father and by helping this father, meaning legally to protect him, try and connect him with his children. And if that's all that's needed or is a mental health expert needed, and there are psychologists, mental health professionals that I have relationships with that I do make referrals to if I think that is what's necessary. I look at that on a case-by-case basis, but if, if a father is, is, is beaten into a corner, he's dead broke, he feels he has nowhere to turn, somebody like that could commit a crime uh, just for the purpose of ending his own life or for the purpose of incarceration because he's given up. And that is something that should never happen, especially in this country. This country... It has the, the resources, so no no man should be in a position where they 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 lose everything, and they're they're considering ending their life or com, uh, by committing a, a crime, and, and these are things that that are very very bothersome and disturbing uh, to me. If I work on cases where where there have been. You know, shootings and people have died. Yes, it's and it's very bothersome and very, very unfortunate uh, to me. I remember one father um, who came to see me, who who was uh, an amputee. Uh, uh, he he um, was in a wheelchair, had no legs, and only and he he, he was uh, he had no legs. One arm was missing. He only had one arm, and that's how he he able to uh, uh, direct his wheelchair. And I went to see him, and he had a child, and the mother refused to vi- let him visit because she was embarrassed, mm. and she didn't want the child to see her father because she thought his disability was an embarrassment to her and to her. I mean that that was, and and that. And that father was struggling and even worked, even at a full-time job with, with, with that disability. Mm-hmm. And he was struggling to find a reason to live. Mm-hmm. Situations like that, there need to be help for, for fathers like that. And not just fathers like that, for children. Mm-hmm. You know, you know for, for, it was terrible. I, I represented another father who was disabled. He was, uh, the disability had to do with the shooting. It was a drive-by. He was at the wrong place, the wrong time was shot, and was disabled. Uh, he was unable to, to see his daughter. Uh, and when he came to me, I, we were able to fight for him. And uh, he finally saw his daughter, but by the time he had contact with her, she was a teenager. But when they were reunited, they were both in tears. And... I just can't understand how the mother would allow, would, would, would do that, and how our society would not have resources for that father and for that little girl. But it was, but they, they were, they were eventually uh, reunited. 
and he and for and he couldn't find help. He couldn't came to me. He told me he was contacting uh, different uh, legal aid organizations and mm-hmm. get an attorney. Uh, so we represented him and helped him. Yeah, you know, what we do know is hurt people hurt people, right? And so, you know, it often reminds me, I use this as a kind of storyline when I'm talking about this whole mental health aspect of this work, too, because that's another area that we have to dig into. Um, And I always bring up the name of Walter Scott, you know, the young man that was um, shot by and killed by the police in um, Columbia, South Carolina some years ago. Um, And when the story broke and it came out, um, they found out that he was actually running from the police because he thought he was getting ready to get arrested again for child support because he had been arrested for child support. And what always strikes me about that case, um, Jeffrey, is that the other thing that people don't talk about often about him is that he was 50 years old. And I can't imagine being a 50-year-old man that frightened of a system that I would jump out of my car and run away from a police officer thinking that that was the best choice to make. And unfortunately, he lost his life as a result of that. Do you think that when you talk to the dads that you talk to, that they still have a somewhat healthy fear of the system and what it might do to them if they get, quote, unquote, caught up in it? A lot of fathers are fearful of the system and they're fearful of the police. Mm-hmm. And it's an unfortunate, but um, it, it's a reality. I, I had a client uh, that was in a car and he had marijuana with him uh, and other things. And he jumped out of the car, ran from the police he shot him in the back five times. He lived. He didn't die. It was a miracle. I don't know how he lived. Five times in the back. And then he was criminally charged. Mm-hmm. And I, I spoke to one of the police officers because I went to the police station uh, to visit him because what happened was he was, he, he was t- the police, this is what I was told, took him out of the emergency room at the hospital, shot in the back five times, and threw him in a cell in the police station. How's he going to survive? He bleed out. So I went to the police station and I spoke to him. uh, And uh, while I was speaking to him, I thought we were all alone. And then all of a sudden I heard a voice out of nowhere as a police officer who was eavesdropping. And he said, he's effing lying to you. Exact words. Mm. Uh, He didn't say effing, but he said he's fucking lying to you. Mm -hmm. And I I said, officer, you have no right to listen to this conversation. Well, to make a long story short, I couldn't get the police to get to transport him back to the hospital, and I didn't want him to die. So what I did was started calling all the news rooms I could call. All the, while his family, uh, this is even they were in a car outside of the police station uh, smoking weed, mm. and I told them don't stay out of the police station. So I finally got one news crew to come to the police station. What the news crew did is they called the police station to tell them they're on their way. The minute they did that, what do you think happened? The police took the guy to the back door of the police station, drove him back to the hospital, and that's why he, he lived. And what happened was the criminal case uh, uh, 
was the success. He wasn't convicted. He didn't go to prison. Uh, I still, it's a miracle he lived. And I remember talking to him in a wheelchair on the last day in criminal court. And I said, now we have to file a lawsuit. You have a multi, multi million dollar lawsuit. And he said, no, I'm not going to do it. He said, you got to, we got to sue the city, sue the police. Mm-hmm. This is wrong. He said, no, no, I'm not. He wouldn't do it because he thought if he sued the police, they, they would come back and kill him. Wow. So he never allowed me to authorize me to sue the city, the police, because he was scared they, they, that they would, they would, the next time they, they would sue. Mm. And a lot of men feel like that. They're, wow. they're very frightened. They don't trust the system. They don't trust a good friend of mine who I work with, a colleague of mine, he just tried a case uh, in Minnesota, civil rights case, where his client was shot to death uh, by the police and just got a nine, uh, $9.5 million uh, decision, $9.5 million. So he did, uh, he did, uh, he succeeded. Mm-hmm. And it's not the money, it's not the $11.5 million, it's the fact that that sends a message that if you keep on if doing things like this, it's going to cripple, financially cripple different cities. Wow. I have um, two other things I want to talk about. There's so much you and I could talk about. I will definitely have you and your law firm back because I think that um, there's a lot that you could teach families and more specifically fathers about what they should know and understand. Um, about these systems and how they can navigate these systems. So trust me, you will be back. You and your your um, partner will be back talking about these things because I think it's important for them to hear um, this conversation. And so, but the one thing I wanted to bring up, and I know most people that aren't younger than I am, we're a certain generation that remembers Elian Gonzalez, right? We don't like I remember it because I literally remember sitting and watching the television and watching all of the um, conversation and news stories and stuff around him. But in a very ironic thing, I remember for some odd reason his dad. I just remember his dad and the aura that his dad had around that case and his desire um, to be able to get his son. And so how did that experience shape your perspective, you know, on the work that you do? Well, um, that, that was a very interesting case. And, and one thing that a lot of people don't know, I have rel- a lot of family on my mother's side uh, from Cuba. They don't live there anymore. <laughs> They're, um, some are in Miami and uh, some are in Israel. And I have one cousin was Fidel Castro's physician, and he's now in, uh, he works in a hospital in Netanya in Israel, and he's the only Cuban physician there, and he's pretty old. I mean, he's a lot older than me. I, I can't believe he's still working. I mean, he's, he's you know, he's, he, he's, I just can't believe it. He's, he's, he's in his late 80s, and he, he can't perform surgery anymore. They won't allow him because of his age. But he works six days a week. I don't know how he does it. And uh, and all he does is complain because he tells me that I can't pronounce Jillian Gonzalez's name and I pronounce it wrong. And, <laughs> and uh, he's always complaining. 
but he's a nice guy. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a good person. And, uh, I wish he lived in Chicago because I hardly ever see him. Mm. Uh, but, uh, but that, that case was, was, was a very, very sad case. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, but the, the end result is a good result. He, uh, he went back to his dad and he should be with his dad because his mother perished. She, she drowned. Wow. He lost his mother. Wow. The only other biological parent he had was his dad. Right. And his dad loved him. Right. Why? Why shouldn't they be together? Uh, that was outrageous and it was offensive to me, personally and professionally. But thank God, everything worked out, and now he's an adult. And I remember meeting with his maternal and paternal grandparents in Washington D.C. in the Cuban interest section because there there is there's no embassy because. You know, so there could, there's no Cuban embassy, mm-hmm. uh, but there was a Cuban interest section. So, uh, I met with them in DC there and it would, and I spoke to both of them and the maternal, the maternal grandmother said, if my daughter was still alive, she'd want Ilan to be with father or dad. Wow. And, uh, it was, it was very, very, very emotional mm-hmm. and but uh, uh, everything worked out thing yeah I don't even know what it is I just I just remember it I just is something like and I wasn't nowhere near this work but it was something about him that just resonated out of that story and his tenacity about his desire and how much he loved his son was just I guess it was just overwhelming because I guess as a kid who did not have his father in his life and other children who did not have their fathers in his life to see that expression of love for a child was something that we all needed to see we needed to know that that kind of love for your child existed and I think that's was that's what resonates with me when I remember um, that story now I've watched you be honored by um, our 44th president um, President Barack Obama I've seen you in his spaces We've been in mutual spaces With him But you also just got a new honor From 46 um, President Biden Talk a little bit about that honor And talk about what that means And what it's for well, Actually I have been here <laughs> And, I, it's, uh, and I, I am Definitely going to frame it It's a, a Lifetime Achievement Award And it's signed by President uh, President Biden, I, it's, this yep, is I it, see it. Mm-hmm. and it, it was it was it was an honor to re- receive this, uh, and uh, I can't wait to frame it and and hang it up. Uh, it was a gr- great honor to receive this because when President Obama was president and I served on his National Finance Committee, uh, I had the honor of also uh, you know spending time speaking with. Uh, Joe Biden, who was then vice president, and uh, and uh, I'm glad he decided to run for president because I remember when his one of his sons passed away. I was speaking with him uh, in a his home, and uh, at that point in time, I, I was under the impression he wouldn't run for president. But mm-hmm. He was. I really felt he was heartbroken. Yes. when he lost one of his sons, mm-hmm. he, one of his sons, he was really. It, it really tore him up, mm-hmm. but uh, but he, he's a great man. 
I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. Great vice president, a great president. And I really, really was an honor to receive the Lifetime Achievement Award. And he was in Chicago after I received the award. And I was hoping to meet with him. But unfortunately, I ended up with with an emergency eye surgery. Uh, so I had to, unfortunately, go to the hospital instead of uh, see him. But uh, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, seeing him shortly. Wow. Jeffrey, thanks so much to your um, and for your passion and your um, commitment to this work of families, um, but more specifically to um, help fathers um, equalize the field somewhat so that they can be engaged in the lives of their children in the way that they want to be engaged and they rightfully so should be engaged in the lives of their children. Um, your work means so much to the space and to the field. Um, I appreciate you have always admired the work that you have done, um, have always seen value um, not only in you, but in the work that you do specifically in Chicago, but more importantly across the country. And we do need to elevate this conversation a little more because I know that um, grantees and, and, and programs across the country who are leaning in to serving fathers, um, one of their biggest struggles is the legal side of the aspect of their work and how do they begin to um, talk to and convince lawyers in their local jurisdictions that this is a um, cause worthy you know, of supporting and helping these fathers. And it's not just to help fathers take children from moms, but it is to serve in their rightful and desired place as a co-parent for their children. So I thank you for all of that. Um, Thank you so much. Um, Let's tell people how to get in touch with you, how to get your books, how to find you in Chicago if they happen to be there. Well, my phone number is 312-807-3990. That's 312-807-3990. I do have an email, um, and my email is jleving at lovinglaw.com. And if that doesn't work, uh, my assistant, Jennifer Whiteside, has an email. And uh, Jennifer, you want to give me your card with your email? Um, And... uh, well, I guess Jennifer doesn't, you don't have any of your cards with you? That's okay. <laughs> well, then you could try me at another number I'll give you, which is uh, my personal iPhone, which is 312-296-8656. And I have a lot of social media, and, uh, and I'm very proud of my website, dadsrights.com, D-A-D-S-R-I-G-H-T-S.com, dadsrights.com, and I have a lot of uh, uh, social media and if you uh, call me I'll give you all the information or what I can do I'll give you my Twitter my Twitter uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Dad's Rights or my Facebook is simply Dad's Rights Instagram is Dad's Rights uh, so um, I hope uh, you could look at all that contact information mm-hmm. and one thing I always think about is I remember when I was in the White House once, and uh, more than once, but one time that was very, very memorable, and uh, President Obama was there. And that was uh, when it was after, and then 
that's when it was announced that Nelson Mandela passed. Very emotional experience. Uh, uh, and I remember it makes me think about something Nelson Mandela always said. A winner is a dreamer who never gives up. And that's something important. And I tell that a lot to these dads. Never give up. Don't give up. Now, it's easy for me to say. It's not always easy for a father who feels that the most important thing for him in his life, son or daughter, he may be lost forever. Uh, so it's easy for me to say, but never give up hope. That's what I tell my clients. And not a guarantee, but they can't give up hope because if they give up hope, they're going to lose and their children need it. Absolutely. And thank you so much. And thank you to all my I Am Dad podcast listeners. Um, I appreciate each and every one of you, like I always urge you to do. Um, just reach down, reach your hand down. I know you see that subscribe, you see that follow button. Make sure you hit those two things because those things are important um, to us to continue to do this work that we do and to expand our voice. Um, into spaces that we may not be in currently And so you know how I like to leave you Always be kind to others as you're kind to yourself Or you might find yourself by yourself Always shoot high for your goals Because even if you miss You'll be amongst the stars And as my good mentor used to always say to me It's nice to be important But you know what? It's much more important to be nice Until next week, God bless And I love you And there's absolutely nothing you can do about it Take care Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. You've been listening to I Am Dad Podcast. We hope that you have been informed, encouraged you to think, or even inspired your heart for the love of dads. The conversation does not end here. Come back and join us next week. Same time, same place. Or you can continue the dialogue on our I Am Dad Facebook page. We also invite you to listen to past episodes, learn more about us, and keep up with special activities by visiting IamDadPodcast.com. That's IamDadPodcast.com. Until next time, I leave you with this reminder of manhood from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Because of this reminder, I will always understand that I am dad, period. period.